Let's return now to my conversation with Duncan Ryukin Williams. I asked him about the opening to his book, American Sutra. It features a poem by a Zen Buddhist priest named Nyogen Senzaki. When Pearl Harbor happened, Senzaki had been in the U.S. for nearly 40 years and had organized a multi-ethnic Buddhist community in Los Angeles. He writes a poem once he learns of the U.S. Army policy uh, that every Japanese person, it doesn't matter if you're you know, a threat to national security, if you're an uh, infirmed grandmother or a little tiny baby, everybody's going to go to these camps. He writes a poem called Parting on May 7, 1940. He's writing it to his multi-ethnic uh, Zen Buddhist community. So he's writing it to the folks in his group who are not, you know, of Japanese ancestry. This is the poem that he writes. Thus have I heard the army ordered all Japanese faces to be evacuated from the city of Los Angeles. This homeless monk has nothing but a Japanese face. He stayed here 13 springs meditating with all faces from all parts of the world and studied the teaching of Buddha with them. Wherever he goes, he may form other groups, inviting friends of all faces, beckoning them with the empty hands of Zen. And the reason I opened the book with this uh, poem, in part because of this first line, thus have I heard. It's a phrase mm. that is used in classical Buddhist scriptures, sutras. When the Buddha was alive and he was preaching, nobody wrote it down. And so three months after the Buddha's death, they had this big assembly of Buddhist priests. And one of the monks, Ananda, is supposed to have a great memory. He apparently was requested to recite all of the Buddhist sermons in front of everybody. And they would kind of like agree that that's what the Buddha said. And But he would always preface what he recalled with, thus have I heard. So that phrase is an indication of a Buddhist scripture. And what is fascinating here is that usually what follows is, you know, Buddhist lessons on wisdom or compassion or meditation or something like that. But in Nyogen Senzaki's poem, he's just describing the lived experience of the Japanese-American community being removed by the U.S. Army, but with this kind of hope that wherever he goes, he may form other groups inviting friends of all faces with the empty hands of Zen. So he's saying he's hopeful that some kind of multi-ethnic American Buddhist community might even come out of this army policy or despite it. And um, so to me, it's an interesting thing that the Buddhist lesson that's being taught here is something about this lived experience of forced removal and incarceration is actually going to be a lesson, not only for Buddhists, but perhaps for Americans of every stripe. Tell us what you've heard and what you've read about the conditions in the actual camps, the assembly centers and such, for Japanese-American Buddhists, and, and particularly how Buddhism was practiced in those camps, in those spaces. One of the first challenges that they faced when they got to these euphemistically called assembly centers. This is while the long-term war relocation authority camps, 10 of them were being built to house 120,000 people. They first went to these temporary assembly centers. They were often at fairgrounds, county fairgrounds, or, or uh, livestock uh, centers, or uh, horse racing tracks, like in the one in LA that Nogen Senzaki went to. He, he lived literally 
in a horse stall where you could smell the urine and the manure mm. uh, that had been there just weeks before these Japanese were placed there. And so that, in that kind of context, uh, they enter the assembly centers and the first rule that they are informed about is that the army is prohibiting anything written in Japanese, including Buddhist scriptures or even like a book of Japanese poetry that's considered contraband and that you got to take that out of your suitcase as you enter these places. But the two exceptions they made to that policy was that if you had a dictionary that had English and Japanese in it, that was okay. But And if you had a Christian Bible written in Japanese, that was okay. <laughs> wow. So the message they got, there's a kind of assumed, I sometimes call it Anglo-Protestant normativity, but like this idea of Anglo both in the sense of whiteness, but also in the sense of, you know, English only. That's what the government expected. The other big thing in these camps was the creation, like very creatively sometimes, of a way to practice Buddhism, despite the fact that you don't have your normal surroundings and the normal ritual items and so forth. And so the very first big ceremony, once you get in these camps, is April of 1942. It's the Buddha's birthday. It happens every April. And in one camp, they didn't have anybody with a Buddha statue that you normally would use, you usually have a ceremony on the Buddha's birthday where you pour sweet tea on a statue of a baby Buddha. They had neither, but they did have army rationed coffee and some sugar. And so they made a sweet coffee drink. And one of the young men went to the mess hall and found the largest carrot that he could find and carved, you know, at least a semblance of a Buddha uh, out of that carrot. And wow. so they poured that sweet coffee on this carrot Buddha. So that's the kind of thing that they had to do to recreate Buddhist practice in these camps because they just didn't have anything. And I think they were actually very uh, creative in so doing. Now, now you actually discovered a Japanese-American intelligence officer who was captured by the Japanese military. What was that story? So 6,000 uh, Japanese-Americans served in the Pacific. Now, if mm. you can imagine conducting the war against the Japanese Imperial Japanese Army and Imperial Japanese Navy in the Pacific required people who were linguistically and culturally bilingual, bicultural, because you needed to have people that could do code breaking, you needed people to do prisoner interrogation, radio intercepts. And so roughly 6,000 Japanese Americans served in that theater of combat. And one of the people, one of those 6,000 was a guy called Richard Sakakita. Before the war, he's the head cadet in the ROTC at his local high school in Honolulu, Hawaii. He gets the first Japanese American to get a full scholarship offer to go to West Point. Wow. But he's also from a very devout Buddhist family, and he gets a full scholarship offer from the bishop of his sect of Buddhism to go to Japan and become the first Japanese American to go and train in Japan, become and kind of like come back as a missionary, as it were, a Buddhist priest. And so he ultimately rejects both of those things in the late 1930s and gets recruited to serve in the counterintelligence corps in the Philippines, even prior to the Pearl Harbor attack. So he's kind of embedded in the American intelligence operations there. You know, as the Philippines fell, thousands of uh, Americans are taken prisoner by the Japanese, often experiencing brutal marches and prison camps. But Sakakita is one of them, the only Japanese American among the Americans uh, captured by the Japanese. So he is targeted by the Japanese military, tortured for uh, days. And 
he gets through that torture because of his Buddhist faith and what he calls his rebellious Yankee spirit. He kind of merged mm. the two things to get through the torture and not reveal any kind of American secrets to his uh, captors. And so the story of Sakakita is really fascinating. He goes through so many adventures. He, he engineers prison breaks. He himself manages to escape uh, from the hands of the Japanese. MacArthur had sent six different rescue teams to try to get him out because he was such an important intelligence asset. They all fail, but he himself engineers his escape, lives in the jungle for some time, uh, gets captured by some uh, headhunting <laughs> Aboriginal tribe in the Philippines, nearly dies, uh, is wounded again. Anyway, he goes through this adventure and finally, after the, right at the end of the war, reunites with the U.S. Army. MacArthur says, look, Sakakita, you need to head the War Crimes Tribunal for the entire territory of the Philippines. And so he gets assigned to do that job. And in that process, he, he tracks down the three officers that had tortured him during the war. And in the moment that he meets them, he comes to recall this Buddhist teaching that he learned when he was growing up in Honolulu, Hawaii. He remembers this phrase from the Dhammapada, Buddhist scripture, that says, uh, like Fire is not put out by fire, but only by water. Hatred is put out by love and not by hatred. Mm -hmm. And so he recalls this phrase and in that moment forgives these people that tortured him. So to me, this is a really interesting American story of somebody who really served his country and is recognized so by the highest levels of the U.S. military. Uh, but is somebody who did that, uh, drawing both on his deep Buddhist face, but also his deep faith in America as well. Keeping with the theme of the aftermath of the war and moments of humanity in, in its wake, what happens to American Buddhism writ large in the wake of internment, and in what ways does it spread across the United States after the war? So one of the things that happens in the process of resettlement, as it's sometimes called, people couldn't go back to the West Coast until 1945, but in the meantime, in 44, some Buddhists were able, if they could pass, a, they called it the sometimes colloquially known as the loyalty questionnaire, uh, they were able to leave camp and places like Chicago, New York, Baltimore, places east of this Western Defense Command Zone on the Pacific Coast, quite a few thousand of the 120,000 people in these camps were able to leave camp a little bit early before the end of the war, and there they set up these Buddhist temples. And in so doing, the temple served as a community center for these people that were in further dislocation uh, and trying to resettle and recreate their lives. But also, they introduced Buddhism to people in these areas of the United States that previously didn't really have very much exposure to the Buddhist religion. And so you found people of other ethnicities uh, taking an interest, coming to these temples in New York, in Chicago, in Denver. And this was the beginning of what would later become in the 1950s and 60s and into the 70s, this kind of beat generation, uh, kind of the counterculture, hippie movement, these parts of the American community uh, being exposed to Buddhism for the first time. 
My sense from your own work is that you're describing a, a unique form of Buddhism that comes, in a lot of ways, that flowers out of this experience. How does this discussion of the Japanese-American Buddhist experience generally tell us about religion and Buddhism's durability as a part of American life? Well, in one of the things that when one studies, let's say, the 2,500-year history of Buddhism, is that when it moved from its original roots in India and moved to, say, China, or from China to Japan or to Tibet, or each time it moves, there's a concept in Buddhism called, in Japanese, it's called hoben, but it's skillful adaptation. And so mm. this idea of kind of like smartly, skillfully adapting the Buddhist teaching to each time and place. And so the story of the emergence in, a, in an unlikely moment when Buddhism is in some sense under attack is actually the very moment uh, where something called American Buddhism gets crystallized, where certain kinds of adaptations start happening. There are these pressures to say, hey, I'm loyal to the United States in this time of war, and that my faith is what gives me direction and guidance. And, and, and so they didn't want to abandon that, and yet they also wanted to find a way to say, our religion is not a threatening thing. And so among the many things that happen, using more English terminology, sometimes even using Christian terminology, like in 1944, in one of the camps, one of the large organizations that used to be called the Buddhist Mission of North America, BMNA, goes to court and changes their name to the BCA, the Buddhist Churches of America. And so this idea of like doing church or, or meeting on Sundays and things like that, that process already was happening before the war to a certain extent, but becomes very much crystallized in the camps. And so what emerges is a kind of new form of Buddhism, American Buddhism. Duncan Ryukin Williams is the author of the book American Sutra, a story of faith and freedom in the Second World War. He's also the director of the Shinzo Ito Center for Japanese Religions and Culture at the University of Southern California. <laughs> 